seated. Please take your Bible and open up to Isaiah chapter 11. Our text this morning will be from Isaiah chapter 11. And as you're doing that, want to uh, call the church to prayer uh, for another beloved family here. Uh, we found out this week that Tammy Ford is getting some testing uh, with uh, reference to pancreatic cancer. And uh, so we want to pray for Tim and Tammy Ford as they go through this testing and figure out what the next steps are for their family. As long, or also we'll, we're praying for, as Pastor Mike said, the Mitchums. Continue to pray for my parents, Randy and Donna Loganow, and uh, for Dave and Cheryl Lee as David is recovering uh, from his surgery. And so we, uh, we bring all these things to the Lord and trust in his sovereignty and goodness. Before we pray, though, let's read Isaiah chapter 11. Starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the, peoples, the people of the east. They shall put their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And Yahweh will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, 
and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Father, we do confess what we sing, that we genuinely believe that death is defeated and that Jesus reigns, and that there is hope in his name, that through his life, death, and resurrection, that Jesus pushed back the darkness and that he conquered our sin and that he will make all things new. So, Father, we ask for your grace this morning. We ask for your grace for Tim and Tammy Ford. We ask for your grace for Larry and Virginia Mitchum, for Randy and Donna Loganow, for David and Cheryl Lee. Father, for others that we haven't mentioned or don't know about in our body who are hurting physically, emotionally, spiritually. Father, we ask for your grace for Christ Community Church in 2023, that we would continue to faithfully administer the word and the sacraments to your people. Pray for your elders as they lead your people this year. Pray for the deacons as they serve your people this year. Father, we ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth because your word is the truth. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We had missed it. It was New Year's Eve. It was actually the first New Year's Eve that we had stayed in Kentucky. It may have been the only New Year's Eve that we were in Kentucky. I don't remember, because normally we'd come home for Christmas and New Year's. But this year we had stayed in Kentucky, and so <clears throat> we turned on the, the Dick Clark you know, New Year's Eve special it was like 11.45 p.m., and as the clock was approaching midnight, we were awaiting the world-famous ball to drop in Times Square, and as the minutes continued to tick toward midnight, it became suspicious to me how little they were showing the ball in Times Square. You know, normally before midnight, they keep showing it and People are singing and, and partying and whatever else, but they didn't show the ball very much. And so Ryan Seacrest or whoever was hosting it uh, was on, and, and they looked like they, were, they had kind of already been partying. Very suspicious. It, looked, it almost looked as if the excitement had kind of passed already. But again, it's like 11.50, right? So... I must have just been misreading the situation. And then 11.59 came. No ball. Midnight. No ball. 12.01. No ball. I was like, did this get canceled this year? And we didn't know about it? At this point, we're like, what is going on? Well, here's what was going on. We lived in central time. And the networks do a countdown for eastern time, and they do a countdown for Pacific time. 
They do not do a countdown for Central Time, in case you did not know that. So the networks had shown the ball descend an hour earlier, and there was no grand countdown to usher us into the new year for those of us who lived in the Central Time Zone. We didn't know that. We learned that that year. We were eagerly anticipating the new year, eagerly anticipating that which was new, but we missed it. I'm afraid that many of us do the same thing when we think about death and heaven and the resurrection and the new creation and the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it is because of the influence of medieval theology and art, or if it's because of the influence of dispensationalism, or the influence of revivalist hymns that talk about mansions in heaven, whatever the root cause is, the result is the same. We eagerly anticipate the new, but we miss it. One of the rhythms that we embrace every year here at Christ Community Church is that either on the last Sunday of a calendar year or on the first Sunday of a calendar year, depending on how Advent and Christmas falls, we take that Sunday and we reflect on and we anticipate the new creation that Jesus is going to bring when he brings the new heavens and the new earth. If you've been paying attention to our call to worship, to our historical reading, to the songs that we've been singing. You'll see a theme of new creation, of the second coming of Jesus. And so on this January 1st, 2023, we will do so from Isaiah chapter 11. And this pericope, this chapter, is one among many that can confuse modern Christians as they think about the eternal future of God's elect. And so before we walk through this chapter together, I want to make clear the two goals that I have with this sermon. I have two goals as I preach through this text, and whether each applies to you will depend on what Pastor Mike was talking about earlier. It will depend on what you think about Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christian, my goal is is to show you that Jesus came to earth to make all things new, and that begins with your heart. And I pray that as a result of this sermon, that you will repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus alone. My second goal is for those of us who are Christians. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ already, my goal is, is that you would be reminded once again that Jesus is coming back to make all things new and that you will simultaneously hope for and rest in the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. These two goals are summarized in my sermon summary this morning, which is this. Jesus Christ is the king of the world, and if your faith is in him, your future and the future of the world is better than you can even imagine. Jesus Christ is the king of the world, and if your faith is in him, your future and the future of the world is better than you can even imagine. 
Now, let's look at this scripture and see why that statement is true. First, in verses 1 through 5, we see that Jesus is the king. Verses 1 through 5 tell us that Jesus is the king. A a note on the book of Isaiah in general, right? Because we want to have the context of what's going on. Pastor Kevin did a great job. Um, I can't remember if it was Christmas Eve or, or the Advent sermon before then, but talking about how when we're interpreting a text in the Bible, the first thing we want to do is know what did the original author intend to convey to the original audience. That's not the only thing we're doing as we interpret the Bible, but that is the first thing that we are doing. So what is the book of Isaiah in general and Isaiah chapter 11 specifically all about? The book of Isaiah is a prophetic judgment against Israel and Judah for their sin. But just like the rest of the story of the Bible, judgment is accompanied by salvation. In fact, oftentimes salvation is accomplished through judgment. In the first 10 chapters of the book of Isaiah, Yahweh declares that he will judge Israel for their idolatry and their oppression. It's ironic, isn't it? As we have been studying through the book of Exodus, you know, before we came into Advent, we noted repeatedly that God poured out his judgment on Egypt because of their idolatry and their oppression. God's law, the whole law, the whole Torah, is summarized in the Ten Commandments. You see them up on the wall here in these gold banners provided for us by the late, great Jan Heisler. The Ten Commandments, they are the summary of the total of God's law. In fact, as we reach Exodus 20, Pastor Kevin and I are going to preach through the Ten Commandments one by one, week by week. They are are the summary of the total of God's law. But even the Ten Commandments are summarized in what Jesus called the two great commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor. So the summary of the law in two statements is to love God and love neighbor. The Egyptians were breaking God's law through their idolatry, their improper loving of God, and through their oppression, their improper loving of their neighbor. So because they were not rightly loving God and were not rightly loving their neighbor, they were breaking God's law even before his law was formally given. But now, here in the book of Isaiah, the Lord is going to judge Israel for their idolatry and for their oppression. Israel had become Egypt. God redeemed Israel from Egypt in the Exodus, and now Israel had become Egypt as they were worshiping pagan idols and as they were abusing their neighbors through oppression and through sexual immorality. Israel had become Egypt. And so in the first 10 chapters of Isaiah, God thunders that he will use Assyria to judge Israel, he's going to judge Israel through Assyria, and then he's going to turn and judge Assyria. This happened when the Assyrians took the northern kingdom, which was Israel, right? Solomon's sons divided the kingdom into two, Israel and Judah. Assyria came and took Israel, the northern kingdom, into exile, and then the Assyrians were judged when the Babylonians overthrew them, and then the Babylonians took the southern kingdom, Judah, into exile. And here, in this redemptive historical occasion, we find another 
uh, example of the sovereignty of God over human responsibility and will. You see, God uses Assyria to judge Israel for their sin, and then he judges Assyria for their sin, which includes taking Israel into exile. Scripture tells us in so many ways that humans are responsible for their thoughts, their words, and their deeds. At the same time, God is sovereign over every particle of creation, including the thoughts, words, and deeds of his creatures. That means that we are responsible for our thoughts, words, and deeds, but we also must rest in the meticulous sovereignty of God. As we sing often in the hymn, In Christ Alone, from life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, from life's first cry, in fact, we need to go back even further than that. From the moment of conception until the moment of death, Jesus is sovereign over everything that happens in your life. That's what the scripture tells us. And so as we arrive at Isaiah chapter 11, in the midst of all this judgment, God gives ancient Israel a glimpse of hope. Verses 1 through 5 that we read continue the refrain from the Old Testament that a man is going to come to right Adam's wrong. This man will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse, verse 1 says. We saw last week as we finished the book of Ruth on Christmas that Jesse was the father of King David and that Yahweh had promised King David that one of his sons would sit on his throne forever. This son, this promised son of David, was obviously not Solomon because Solomon himself fell into idolatry and Solomon himself fell into a sexual immorality that would put fundamentalist polygamist Mormons to shame. Solomon's sons in their sin then divided the kingdom into the north and the south, Israel and Judah, and then with each successive king of Israel until the exile, it becomes increasingly clear that the advent of this promised king was still yet to come. As the pages of the Old Testament close, the promise had not been fulfilled yet. But as we open the pages of the New Testament, Matthew's genealogy reveals to us that this branch from the stump of Jesse is Jesus of Nazareth. And the New Testament reveals to us that the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, became man in his incarnation. And that at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus of Nazareth, and that Jesus was the first person in history who was permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit worked regeneration in the hearts of those who believe. And some were indwelt for seasons, but no one was permanently indwelt. Think of Psalm 51 where David cries out, take not your Holy Spirit from me. We know that Saul, the Lord took his spirit from Saul when he removed the kingship from him. In the Old Testament, believers were regenerated, but they were not permanently indwelt. The dwelling of God was in the tabernacle, and it was in the temple. But the promise of the new covenant was that the Holy Spirit of God would live inside each of his people. Notice in verse verse 2, that the word spirit is capitalized, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of Yahweh, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of knowledge. The editors of the ESV Bible are showing you that they don't just mean like the spirit, like, like the, you know, that, that, that the, you know, the, the momentum of something or like what's what you believe about something. It's this is the Holy Spirit. That's what the scripture is talking about. And so, uh, it, the, the, the third person of the Holy Trinity, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've, we've, sung, we've sung of our triune God in multiple songs today, haven't we? That we believe in one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the Spirit Isaiah 11 is talking about, the Holy Spirit. And so at his baptism and through his ministry, Jesus of Nazareth became the first permanently indwelled, spirit-indwelled man. The first man. And now this is true of all who believe. It's true of us. When God saved you, he indwelt you with his spirit. But Isaiah 11 is telling us that this is a new thing, that Jesus is the first one, the first one indwelt by the spirit. Verses three through five then tell us of the righteousness and faithfulness of Jesus. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He doesn't judge by what he sees or what he hears. He's not just going off on a whim. It's righteous. It's with righteousness that he judges the poor, verse 4. Verse 5, righteousness is his belt. Faithfulness is his belt. The New Testament makes this clear, not only in the gospel accounts, but also in texts like Hebrews 4.15 that says that Jesus was without sin. Or 2 Peter 1.1, which states that we are saved by the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the old covenant promises in the Old Testament. Because Jesus followed God's law perfectly in word, thought, and deed, his righteousness is then imputed to all who are in union with with him. It's also important for us to note as we read through Isaiah chapter 11 that these Old Testament prophecies possess an already not yet character. That's where a lot of confusion comes in when people literalistically interpret passages like Isaiah chapter 11. As Isaiah wrote this pericope, Isaiah thought that these things were going to happen at one time. You see, he, he thought that in the day of the Lord, the Messiah would establish God's kingdom, that he would judge the righteous and the unrighteous, and that he would make all things new. But as the Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah to write this prophecy, the Holy Spirit knew that the day of the Lord 
was actually a twofold staggered reality. It's much like a mountain range, which from a distance looks like one thing, one mountain. But the closer you get to the mountain range, you can see the distinct mountains that make up the range. The day of the Lord was inaugurated through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord will be consummated when Jesus returns to raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. Jesus is the king. We saw that as we moved through the gospel of Mark, that Mark is telling us that Jesus is the king. He's the son of David. He's the fulfillment of the promises. He's the shoot from the stump of Jesse. He's the lion of Judah. He's the lamb of God. He's the king of kings. And when Christ returns, the result of that is this world's future will be even better than we can imagine. Look at verses 6 through 8. 6 through 8, Isaiah hearkens back to the Garden of Eden as he uses poetic language to show us that when Christ consummates the new creation, that the world will be set to rights, that everything will be made as it should be. We hear echoes of Eden in these verses when we see that in the new creation, predators will live in shalom, they will live in peace with their prey. The wolf with the lamb, the leopard with the young goat, the calf with the lion, the cow with the bear. We hear the clearest Edenic echo in verse 8, where Isaiah tells us, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Do you hear the refrain back to the first gospel promise of Genesis 3.15? Do you see that? Isaiah means for you to see that. In Genesis 3.15, after Adam fell, God told Adam and Eve that they would have a child who would lift us from Adam's fall. The serpent would bruise this child's heel, but this child will crush the serpent's head. Jesus' heel was bruised by the serpent at the cross. At Calvary, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for the sins of God's people as he died on the cross. So there's a sense in which on Good Friday, Jesus suffered defeat. It was a defeat, but it was not a final defeat. His heel was bruised. But the irony of the gospel is that so often victory comes through defeat. That salvation comes through judgment because it is through the death and resurrection of Jesus that he indeed crushes the serpent's head. Because Jesus rose from the dead, Scripture tells us he is the firstborn of all creation. That Jesus is the first new creation. That the very essence of what the new creation will be already exists in the body of Jesus of Nazareth. And because Jesus rose from the dead, everything sad will be untrue. In the new creation, everything will be perfect. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's what he means to say by this poetic language about animals is that everything's going to be perfect. That in the new creation, that it will be as the first creation when the Lord looked at it and said it was very good. 
There will be no more natural disasters in the new creation. There will be no more hurricanes. There will be no more tornadoes. There will be no more wildfires, no more earthquakes, no more snowstorms. The creation will no longer groan, as Romans 8 says. In the new creation, there will be no more sickness. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more hospitals. There will be no more funeral homes. There will be no more cemeteries. There will be no more death. In the new creation, there will be no more sin. There will be no more murder. There will be no more adultery. There will be no more divorce. There will be no more widows. There will be no more orphans. In the new creation, there will be no more gossip. There will be no more backbiting. There will be no more hurtful words. There will be no loneliness. There will be no rebellion. There will be no unbelief. Jesus gave us a glimpse of this in his ministry when he healed the sick and when he commanded the natural order. You see, Jesus was inaugurating his kingship. He was saying, I am fulfilling what Isaiah promised. He told the storm to be quiet. He told the demons to shut up and get out of here. He touched the leper, and the leprosy was gone. Jesus is not just the king in a trite, holiday, feel-good way. When Jesus tells nature to do something, nature obeys. When Jesus tells sickness to be gone, it listens. When Jesus tells the dead to get up, they obey. I heard someone one time preaching on John chapter 11 when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And they said that Jesus had to call Lazarus by name because if he had just said for the dead to rise, then all of the dead would have got up. Because they would have had to because Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king and he's making all things new. He inaugurated his kingship over the creation 2,000 years ago, and he will consummate it at his second advent. Now, some of you who are good theologically conservative Christians are like, I get what you're saying, pastor, but what do you mean that Jesus became the king 2,000 years ago because God has always been the king of creation, right? He spoke creation into existence. That's a fair point. Our one God in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have always been and always will be sovereign over all of the creation. But you see, the difference is 2,000 years ago, the second person of the Trinity became a human. And now that human is the king of creation, as he has two natures, human and divine. Jesus is the king. This world has a bright future, not because of the goodness of humanity or because of the brilliance of humanity. This world's future is better than you can imagine because the king is coming back and he is making all things new. Our future is not in heaven 
or on the clouds or in mansions in glory on streets of gold. Our future is on this globe. It is tangible. It is real. It will be renewed. It will be free from sin and death. It is a world that will be filled by people who know and worship Jesus. That leads us to our final point in verses 9 through 16, the future of God's people. So we've seen that Jesus is the king. We've seen that the world's future is better than we can even imagine. And in verses 9 through 16, we see that the future of God's people is even better than you can imagine. Isaiah tells us in verse 9, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen. In the new world, everyone, every human being on the planet will know, love, and obey Jesus. Can you imagine a world where every single person knows, loves, and obeys Jesus? Because that's what the new creation is going to be. Everyone will trust and obey Jesus. Because Isaiah 11 tells us that Jesus Christ will gather all of his people not just from Israel, but from all the nations. Verse 11 says that he's going to gather his people even from the nations that are Israel's enemies. Historically, dispensationalists have misinterpreted a text like this to mean that God will gather the ethnic Jews from all the nations. But the New Testament reveals to us that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is true Israel. In fact, if you read the Old Testament rightly, you will see that Israel, true Israel, has never been made up of someone just because they're ethnically Jewish. True Israel has always been those who have believed the promise by faith. Romans, the book of Romans tells us that Father Abraham was counted as righteous not because of his ethnicity, you know, that he was the grandfather of Israel, but because of his faith. Ephesians 2 says that the wall has been torn down between Israel and the Gentiles, and all who place their faith in Christ are God's people, now and forevermore. Verse 16 tells us that that this gathering of the people will be a type of second exodus. Look, it says, there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. This will be the final exodus. Just as Moses led Israel out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land, so Jesus will lead his people out of the slave market of sin and death and into the new creation. This was foreshadowed when Israel returned from exile. You can read about that at the end of the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Ezra, Nehemiah. That's when it was foreshadowed, but it was fulfilled through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and it will be fully and finally consummated when Jesus returns to usher in the new creation. Because that's true, it affects the way that we live today. We must guard against the new creation, the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus being something that that just affects our minds and doesn't affect the way that we live our life. So that being said, I've got 
four, four application points for you about how the doctrine of new creation affects your life today. These are not exhaustive, but I think they apply. The first is the gospel. If you are not a Christian, this is the gospel call for you to repent and believe. If you are not a believer, everything we just talked about is not your future. If you are not trusting in Jesus, you do not have this to look forward to. Because of your sin, if you do not believe in Jesus, then your future is eternal conscious punishment in hell. Because God is holy and God is just and sin must be atoned for. So the urgent call this morning is that you must repent and believe. You must repent. To repent means to turn from your sin. It means to agree with the Bible that you are guilty because of your sin and that you cannot save yourself. It's just like we confessed earlier. It's to, it's to confess that you have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed, that you have sinned against God by what you have done and by what you have left undone, that you have not loved him with your whole heart, that you have not loved your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to repent. It means to confess and genuinely believe that is true. Repent. If you have not repented, repent. But that's only one half of the coin. Repentance and belief. You must also believe. You must have faith in Jesus Christ. They happen at the same time when the Holy Spirit grants life. Repentance and faith. We often talk about how the Reformed tradition has always defined faith with three things, knowledge, assent, and trust. To have faith in Jesus means, first of all, to have knowledge about Jesus, about who Jesus is and about what Jesus did. Knowledge that God is your holy creator and that he created you to be sinless in his image. Knowledge that because Adam fell in sin, you are born as a sinner who sins. You sin because you are a sinner. You have a sin nature. And it means to know that Jesus came and lived without sin and died in your place and rose again and he ascended to heaven and he's coming again to know all of those things about Jesus. But even that's not enough because you must also believe those things are true. You must assent to the validity of the truth of the gospel. And even that's not enough because finally you must transfer your trust to Jesus alone. You must sit down in the chair of faith. You must lay all of your weight on Christ and say, Christ or else I die. As a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. What does that mean? Like the deer comes to the stream with nothing to offer the stream except for the reality that if it doesn't drink of the stream, it will die. That's how we come to Jesus. Jesus, I have nothing to offer you except for the fact that if I do not drink of you, I die. That's what faith means. Repent and believe the gospel. If you're not a Christian, repent and believe the gospel. That's the first one. The second one is hope. If you're already a Christian, the hope of the new creation affects how you live. Because Christians are to be a people of hope. Regardless of how good or bad things are in our country 
or regardless of how good or bad things are in our world, we know that the world will never be perfect until Jesus comes back. But we know for sure that Jesus is coming back and that things will be perfect. Christians should not be pessimistic people. Christians should not be defeatist. Christians should not be complainers. Our king is reigning now, and he will reign forever. Don't confuse that. He's not going to just reign for a thousand years. Jesus is reigning and will reign forever. We have hope. The third thing, the third way that the doctrine of new creation affects the way we live is that it leaves no room for racism in the hearts and minds of Christians. Part of the sin that Israel was being judged for in the book of Isaiah was their racism and oppression of other people groups during this time in redemptive history. And all throughout church history, all throughout church history, this is not a new problem, all throughout church history, Christians have been tempted to be nationalistic and racist, to love people who looked like them and hate people who didn't. This has been happening for thousands of years. But our doctrine of the second advent of Christ will not allow for that. Because the book of Revelation tells us that when Jesus returns, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather around Jesus' throne. This has not just been a white-black problem in church history. But this is what we inherit for our country, majority, right? That's the majority of the discussion. And since a majority of the people in the gathering this morning are white, I'm going to say it this way, but I want you to understand this applies for any group of people who are hating any other group of people. I'm just going to say white because that's what the majority represents this morning. A majority of Christians throughout redemptive history and a majority of Christians on the globe today do not have white skin. Our king, who is coming back, does not have white skin. Now, again, this is not like a white guilt thing. I'm about as white as they come, right? There are white people who are racist. There are people of all sorts of ethnicities who are racist and who have been racist for thousands of years. Racism is an evil sin, and if we believe the gospel... There is no room for racism. The final point the fa that affects the way we live, the new creation affects the way we live here and now, is the home and the church. You see, until Christ returns, his kingdom is lived out in Christian homes and in the church. The home and the church are the only eternal entities on the globe at the moment. No corporation no parachurch organization, no military, no government, no nation is eternal. The United States of America is an insignificant blip in the history of the world. But you know what is not insignificant? Your home and Christ Community Church and every gospel-preaching church on the globe. So don't give your life to your work. Don't give your life to your money. 
don't give your life to politics or to anything else that is not eternal. Give your life, when I say give your life, I mean build your life around these things, your family and your church. Be faithful in your marriage till one of you dies because marriage is a signpost of Christ and the church. Raise your kids to love and obey Jesus because heaven and hell are hanging in the balance. Give your time, your money, your energy to the church. Not just because I'm the, a pastor, but because she is the bride of Jesus. Because Jesus lived for her and he died for her and he rose again and he's caring for her just as he has for 2,000 years. And he's coming back to save her and she will last forever. Don't waste your time, money, and energy on things that aren't eternal. Give your life to a godly home and to a gospel-preaching church because Jesus is the king of the world. And if your faith is in him, your future and the future of the world is better than you can even imagine. Jesus is the true and final king by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection. And when Jesus returns, he will set the world to rights. When Jesus returns, he will save his people. I know that because you bear the image of God and because you're fallen in sin, that you long for that new reality. Please don't miss it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask now for your grace as your word goes forth that you would keep your promise and that it would not return void. Father, we ask for everyone among the gathering this morning who is not trusting in Jesus that your Holy Spirit would work regeneration in their hearts and that their eyes would be open to see the beauty of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and that they would repent of their sin and that they would trust in Jesus alone to save them from their sins. Father, I pray for your people this morning that we would be a people of hope, that we would hope in your second coming, that we would live like it is fact that you are coming again to raise the dead, to judge everyone, and to make all things new. That we would spend our money like that is true. That we would spend our time like that is true. Father, that we would spend our energy like that is true. Father, we pray that you would keep us from sin, from the sin uh, not just of racism, Father, but from, from sexual immorality, from unbelief, from rebellion. Father, and we ask that if we are in rebellion, when we are in rebellion, that we would heed your discipline and that we would repent and that we would experience the cleansing of your forgiveness. Father, we pray that here at Christ Community Church we would build homes and that we would continue to build a church that loves and obeys Jesus, that husbands and fathers would lead their homes 
in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That children would be born and that they would come to know Jesus. 